So you can find the reading on page 1160 in the Pew Bibles. It's from 2 Corinthians, starting at verse 16 of chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. It goes on to um, verse 10 of, of uh, chapter 5. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed in our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose, and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we're always confident, and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things he has done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm sure some of you who are near my age will identify with one or two of the uh, lines of uh, the, uh, the passage that we've had read to us uh, this evening. And uh, to start with, it's all too easy to have a dig at us Christians for being too heavily minded to be of any earthly use, which is a very easy thing for us to rebuff, because the eternal perspective, seeing this life in the context of what happens in the next life, is a perspective which affects all of our values, all our ambitions, all our attitudes. Now in the, uh, the, the three verses at the end of chapter 4, there are three contrasts between the outer and the inner, between the light and momentary troubles and the eternal glory which far outweighs them, and then thirdly between the seen, which is temporary, and the unseen, which is eternal. So the outer and the inner, first of all. Outwardly, we are all wasting away, and yet inwardly, being renewed if we're Christians. Sure, some of you can identify with that. I mean, I think there was a time when I could have shot up a rope halfway to the top of that in no time when I was at school. You know, I realise that now I'll never do that again. Nor will I ever get the ball in my penalty area, dribble through ten players and score the winning goal in extra time. 
I'm not sure I ever did that in reality, but it's in my dreams that I'm allowed to kind of, if I've only got my dreams left, you know, that's, 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 that's good. But it's good to exercise and to keep fit. It's good to take pride in one's appearance, but it is. When you get to my age, you realise it's a losing battle. I'm sure I must have once looked like George Clooney in order for Cathy to have married me, but now I'm on my way to looking like Postman Pat's vicar. <laughs> really, that's it. Yep. The wrinkles come, the hair goes grey. But I found that if you look in a shop window, it looks just the same as being blonde, which is what I was once. The eyesight fades, the hearing uh, fails, and yet I'm still cheerful because I know that inwardly we are being renewed. We are alive and we are refreshed in Christ. We are being transformed. We're told never to speak ill of the dead, but it's well worth sometimes remembering the dead. There are things that you can't say about somebody when they're here amongst us. But when they've died, you can. Some of you will remember, and we've had many, many saints that I can remember, people for whom this verse is really so true. They may have been kind of in their late 80s, but they had that sort of sparkle, the vitality of the eyes, the expression in the smile, the kind of attitude of gracious inquiry into the life of others. I can think of, for example, Marjorie Coffey, who died about 12 years ago in her late 80s. And she'd been a member of this church all her life. In her teenage years, she had what might have been called an accident and had a daughter called Sheila, who's still alive and is a fine Christian living in Hampshire. And uh, she married Dennis, who was the father, and life was quite tough for them in many respects. They were never well off, but she was a really godly lady. She was a lady of prayer, a lady who appreciated reading the Bible, and a doer of good things. And her life demonstrated the reality of this word, this word, this, this sentence here about being inwardly renewed. We're told in the Bible that we, um, Romans 12, about having the renewal of our minds, and she thought differently, I'm sure, through the experience that she had gone through. She manifested the fruits of the Spirit. She had a vitality which comes from Christ. And although she was outwardly wasting away, particularly as she was in her last year when uh, she had a respiratory disease, nonetheless, she displayed the truth of this verse. And then there's the contrast between the light and momentary troubles and eternal glory that far outweighs them. Back in April, I met up for 48 hours with um, some old university friends of mine. It was the first time that all of us had been together um, in 40 years, although some of us see each other quite frequently. 40 years ago, we were in our last year at university and we formed what was called the IQ Exec, the Oxford Intercollegiate Christian Union Executive Committee. There were eight of us. One we couldn't track down. One had had a taste of the light and momentary troubles. 
40 years ago, just after he left uh, university, he experienced um, unrequited love. You know, he had gone to a boys' boarding school. I don't think he'd ever encountered women, and he certainly didn't at university in those days. There were no women in any of our colleges, except five where there were women, but they were all too clever for the rest of us to um, ever approach. Um, but he had unrequited love, and then he was um, not recommended for the ordained ministry in the Church of England. And those things set him back, so much so that he has never worked since. He has just lived off the family fortune. And he has drifted away. He's drifted quite a lot in life. He had a spell on an island in Scotland as a Buddhist. And when I rang him up, um, just to find out if he'd like to come, since nobody had managed to get a reply out of him, he... Uh, told me that at the moment he rather liked dressing up in women's clothing. He is slightly odd. He was one of those who in those days would be, smile, Jesus loves you. He had some sort of beatific smile and glided around, but it was unreality, to be quite honest. Um, but he was looking for that, if you like, transgender narrative to try and be the latest thing which might explain his oddity. I said, come anyway, we don't mind what you come dressed as, we'd just love to see you again. But, you know, you know how you can have a conversation, if you pushed it one more, you'd get him. But then he'd only drop out the next day. There's no point pushing people at that point. So there were five of us blokes left. Um, and uh, two of them have certainly had more than their light and momentary troubles. One, 31 years ago, I know exactly how long ago it is because his daughter is, would have, is the same age as my eldest daughter, except whereas mine is now 31, he's died at three months. She never came out of the intensive care unit. She had muscular difficulties around her diaphragm so that she was never able to breathe unaided. And she, of course, got an infection and died. Your first child, what a loss. A loss, though, which um, directly saw his parents coming to faith. You know, they'd been sceptical. They'd seen people profess faith and in business really make no difference. But they saw the genuineness of his faith and his wife's faith in the midst of such very, very difficult um, trouble. Another of them was driving in France on a family holiday in 1998 and uh, a car came speeding over the hill and drove straight into them. Of course, being in a British car, it meant that your passenger was the one who got hit and his wife was killed instantly, although he escaped with just a broken ankle and his two boys in the back were unharmed, at least physically. I'd holidayed with him 40 years ago, the week after he'd met this girl who was his, to become his wife. He never stopped talking about her, never stopped. And I wondered, how could he live now without her? How did he manage that? Well, 
by the grace of God, he did. And he's written a very moving book about that experience. They're two very genuine examples of suffering which achieved, I think, something of eternal glory as their characters have been transformed. The third contrast in verse 18 is between the seen and temporary and the unseen which is eternal. Jesus had urged his disciples not to lay up treasure on earth. Moths get at the cloth, rust destroys the metals, and thieves break in and steal. Not a secure or rewarding investment. Instead, he suggests, invest first in heaven. How we spend our time and our money are good indicators of where our hearts set. We're urged to fix our eyes on the right location. Next we move to chapter 5 and verses 1 to 5 and remind us that we are on our way home. Again a contrast between this earthly tent and an eternal home in heaven. One made out of perishable canvas by human hands, the other a more solid construction made by God himself. One temporary and destructible, the other permanent and indestructible. And between those two homes, the one on earth and the one in heaven, we groan. Or to change the metaphor from housing, we move to clothing. And rather, in this case, our lack of it. We are not suitably attired for heaven. We're naked, it says. We need the appropriate clothing to be given to us. We need a robe of righteousness so that we can gain what we cannot buy. And we're given it by Christ so we are fit for heaven. A couple of months' time, and some of you, probably on about the 23rd of December, which is the Saturday this year, will be driving home to your folks, probably listening to that kind of little Christmas jolly one about driving home for Christmas. I quite like that, really. I mean, not that I go anywhere, but I stay here, but I mean, anywhere to go, really. But I like, I like playing myself. It, that, it gets me in the mood, you know, driving home for Christmas. Anyway, I'll spare singing it to you, but it's a good, happy little song. And you know when you're going home that you're going to be welcomed. Your mum and dad will be really pleased to see you at Christmas. Delighted that you're back home. A chance to catch up with your siblings, perhaps your cousins, aunts and uncles, and perhaps people that you were at school with. It's a kind of warm, sort of fuzzy, comfortable, lovely kind of experience. It's got a little bit of hint of heaven about it, but I wouldn't kind of, you know, say more than that. It is a little foretaste. To sustain us on our journey home from this life, we passed through to the next life. We have, verse 5, the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I think from memory that... Um, The Greek word arabon, which is here for deposit, is the word in modern Greek for an engagement ring. 
And so think of the logic behind this. If you're the bride-to-be, you think, this guy has shelled out a small fortune for my beautiful engagement ring. He is bound now to turn up on the day. A wedding ring is a fraction of the price. You know, the engagement ring is the deposit guaranteeing that he's going to turn up. Well, the Holy Spirit is the deposit in our life to connect us experientially with God himself. A taste of heaven to come. Christ has done everything for us on the cross. His spirit is within us, transforming us. He is going to deliver on what he started in our life. Paul again, uh, in verse 6, speaks of the confidence that he has of going to be at home with the Lord. Confident that God will keep his promise to the Christian, that when this life packs up, the next life with him will come. Meanwhile, we are to live by faith rather than sight. We can't see heaven and the next life where we go to when we die, and we certainly can't see the new heaven and the new earth because it's not even been created yet, but will be at the end of time when we will acquire a tangible existence forever once again. But is this faith blind? Is it just wishful thinking? Or not at all. It is an evidence-based faith that we have. Just take creation for a moment. What is the best fit for the explanation of our existence when we look at the universe? Is it a symphony with a few off-key instrumentalists who spoil it from time to time? Or is it a complete cacophony, total discourse, and then occasionally, statistically freakishly, you end up with a few notes of harmony? Which is the more plausible? An intelligent mind behind it all, or a random, meaningless chaos with a chance... Um, with random chance creating what we experience today. But if I concede that there is a God, how do I get right with that God? Because I feel uneasy as, as soon as I start to consider the possibility that he does exist. Because I know I've done wrong. If I just manage one wrong thought a day, one wrong word a day and one wrong act a day, that is three a day, that is 21 a week, that is over a thousand a year. Even the youngest of you here this evening have probably clocked up 14,000 previous. Some of us considerably more than that. It's not impressive. God's not going to want me if I am so alien to his character and to where he is. I'll be permanently excluded, but not so. God sustains our world. There are so many variables that have to be just right in order for creation to come into existence and so many more variables just to keep it going the way it is so we can continue to exist. It would just require one or two of those to change and that would be it. We'd either fry or freeze. More convincingly though, he himself has come into the world in the person 
of the Son of God to live amongst us, to tell us and show us that he loves us, to tell us and show us how we should live. And most importantly of all, he has come into our world to suffer what would have been our fate, the exclusion from God himself. So being human, Jesus could represent us. Being divine, he can be perfect, and so he can be an effective substitute in our place. And he suffered that exclusion on the cross so that we might not have to. And because he was perfect, he did not deserve to die. And so he was resurrected. And the resurrection is evidence that God says the cross works, and evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, God on earth, the one who has a rightful claim over our lives, the one we would be incredibly wise to uh, orientate our lives around. A great exchange has taken place. It's on offer for everybody. We give him our unrighteousness. He, in return, gives us his righteousness. We who were not right with God can become right with God. We know it works because when Jesus rose from the dead, over 550 different people over a, over a six-week period on at least 12 different occasions and locations saw, talked, touched and ate with the risen Christ. And their lives were changed and people who were told that by giving their life to Christ, his spirit would come in them and they would be transformed, they were changed. And so the Christian faith, against all the odds, spread right throughout the Roman world and to our day, right throughout the entire world. And once that change has taken place, we are, verse 9, to have as life's goal to please him. It's not necessarily our only goal. It can, after all, be a good thing to do well at some God-given talent you have, whether it's sport, whether it's music, whether it's drama. It can be good to do as best as you can academically. It gives you more life choices. It puts you in a position where you can perhaps have greater influence. But if any of those things come before your love for Christ, well then your priorities are in the wrong order. For example, where will you live when you want to uh, raise a family? In certain parts of the United Kingdom, the population is not well served or not even served by a good Christian church. If the government wants to get more young doctors to go into places they don't want to go to, it pays them an extra £20,000 over three years to go to Grimsby or other such places in the country in the hope that they might go and stay there. If God wants everybody in our country to be reached, he just has to put before us the fact that there is an uneven distribution of Christians around the country. Too many uh, Christians who, who think it would be a good idea to start a church tend to want to start them in university cities where, of course, the ratio of Christian workers to people is very advantageous. 
never occurs to them to go to Grimsby or, or Margate or somewhere or Hastings or somewhere that uh, won't be quite so nice to do so. The challenging places in our country don't seem to get their call. The outer, the outer ring council estates in some places, the sad seaside towns that dot our coastline that once had a heyday as a kind of uh, pre-1960s tourist destination, but now are filled with lots of people who are rather disadvantaged in life. And finally, verse 10, the judgment seat of Christ and our appearance before it. Now, this isn't the court to judge whether the Christian will be granted access to heaven. No, our eternal destination is fixed the moment we turn in repentance and faith to trust and obey Jesus Christ. That's when we are justified by faith. And if we're genuine, we will live a life that reflects Christ's character and will build upon what he considers to be important. So our eternal destination is settled. But what we do for him, to please him, will be assessed at the end of life. We should live a life out of gratitude for what we've already been promised we would have. And we're reminded here that um, that life will be assessed. It will be weighed. You can read all about it in 1 Corinthians 3, for example. Paul speaks of our foundation when we were justified by faith at our conversion and then how we go on to build upon that foundation. And what we build will be assessed there's even a hint there of degrees of reward for how we use our life, that somehow we will be given greater responsibility in the new heaven and the new earth if we use our, right, our life effectively for him in this world. One of the things I like to hear about as a vicar is little acts of kindness, which I kind of hear about from time to time. So... Those acts of kindness are very rarely seen by other people except the beneficiary and are rarely heard about, which is probably just as well. When I visit, for example, a member in hospital, I get an idea of who visits them, who actually looks out for them. And it is good to hear those things and they're real evidence of the life of Christ in the life of such people. Verse 10 is a good one to keep at the forefront of our minds. It'll determine how we live, use our time, and spend our money. And as I close, um, Shell, the giant oil company, once uh, did some research. They wanted to find out what distinguished their very top managers from those who were the kind of cohort below them. And it turned out to be what they termed the helicopter view, the ability to hover above the situation and to look at it 360 degrees, to get the complete context, to see the big picture. 
That's what those guys could do better than other people. That was the distinguishing thing. Now, as Christians, we have a similar vantage point. We can see the big picture. We know where we come from. God has created a perfect universe, but human beings corrupted it. God has acted in Christ to redeem humankind. At the end of time, there will be a new heaven and a new earth after the day of judgment, the day when we have to give account of ourselves. And in the meantime, we live between Christ's first coming, when he redeemed the world, to when his second coming, when he's going to wind it all up. And in that time, we do have to do two things. One is to embrace the salvation that he offers, and the other one is to live a purposeful life out of gratitude to please God. That's the perspective to have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be able to see life through your spectacles. May we retain the big picture and know where we stand in this point in time between your two comings. And we pray that in our time we will be people who are wise enough to embrace the salvation that you have on offer and then to live a life of gratitude that would please you and benefit others. In your name we ask it. Amen.